You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Raytheon, protecting every side of cyber. Spyware, viruses, disinformation campaigns, those are just a few of the threats posed by malicious state actors, rogue hackers, and others. Our efforts to protect critical data and improve the country's cyber capabilities proceeding at a fast enough clip? On Wednesday, October 2nd, the Washington Post gathered technologists, government officials, security experts, and other leaders in cybersecurity to discuss these rapidly evolving issues. Over the past century, the U.S. has led the world in technological innovations and development, but that could be changing. Rivals like China are investing strategically in emerging technologies like AI, robotics, and 5G. Cyber espionage and intellectual property theft also threaten to undermine American dominance in the digital space. In this segment, the head of U.S. counterintelligence and the first attorney to successfully indict members of the Chinese Liberation Army for economic espionage discuss global marketplace competition and security. Let's listen. Hello again, everyone. Uh, Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post National Security Reporter. And for the last conversation of the morning, we are so uh, proud and honored to have Bill Levanina, the top uh, U.S. counterintelligence official and director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, the United States, as well as David Hickton, the first U.S. attorney to obtain an indictment of Chinese military spies for economic espionage, or as uh, Bill likes to call him, the OG of Chinese uh, espionage. Uh, cases, and the founder of the University of Pittsburgh Institute for Law, Policy, and Security. So our uh, conversation today is going to focus on the the top uh, counterintelligence priority for the country, China. And we often hear of of the challenge of a rising China. It's an indispensable trading partner, and at the same time, it's a rival on the global stage. So China has a complicated relationship with the United States, especially when it comes to technological advancement and global market dominance. So Bill, as the head of uh, US counterintelligence, you have a unique vantage point. When it comes to China, where is the US most vulnerable? Is it from IP theft or economic espionage? Is it the race to dominate advanced technologies? Is this a Chinese spy agencies versus U.S. spy agency, or is it a Chinese spy agencies versus the U.S. private sector and academia? How do you frame the challenge? So I will choose E the answer, all of the above. And I think when you look at it from a, a strategic pre- perspective of the U.S. government and private sector, we have to look at all of those vectors individually, but as a group of one. And, and I think it's important for our audience to understand that um, geopolitically and militarily, economically, China is all of one, right? So in America, we have had the opportunity to grow up in a society where we have clear bifurcation between the government, the private sector, and the criminal element. And that's not the case in the People's Republic of China or in Russia or Iran. So it's an unfair playing field and they utilize all those resources as one to combat us. And I think for this conversation, the important part of, of answer D was that right now our struggle is that it's a intelligence services battle against our private industry. And that's not the way we do business. So we're trying to combat that and allow and alleviate the threat by integrating the private sector as part of the battle. And that's our biggest challenge right now. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, well, and Dave, as, as I mentioned, you led the case against hackers working for the People's Liberation Army of China, but that's just one of the many precedent-setting cases you, you've spearheaded in cyberspace. How many, you know, but in, in some sense, how many of them have actually wound up in prison? Once in a while you get lucky and some defendant travels to a country with an extradition treaty and gets picked up and sent over here. But Chinese hackers are not likely to do that. So how do we hold these malign Chinese actors in cyberspace accountable? Well, you're correct, but I think that the case we brought in 2014 led to the agreement between President Obama and President Xi, which is an even greater result, which everybody agrees reduced intellectual property theft down until virtually the election of 2016. But you're making this a very good point that we don't have an extradition treaty, and this is one of the challenges of the borderless nature of cybercrime. I argue that unmasking cyber criminals has virtue in and of itself because the principal currency of cyber criminals is their anonymity. And if you unmask them and declare that they did it, that's the first step. By the time I left the government, I was trying to expand the forums for adjudicating these cases beyond criminal investigations into the World Trade Organization, Commerce, and Treasury. And my belief is that we need to hold foreign actors to the same standard we would hold American citizens so that if they steal from our industry, particularly intellectual property, they ought not participate in our markets. Mm -hmm. I, I want to uh, jump on that because sure. I, I believe that that was a seminal moment in our government's ability to combat theft of IP and trade secrets because it was turned out to be a marketing endeavor where we were able to educate and inform the American public as well as the entire government writ large of an intelligence services, in this case, the People's Liberation Army, uh, theft of our business and our economic and, and ingenuity and know-how for their military purposes. And I think that was a watershed moment that we kept always in the government, but this is the first time we were able to shed light on, on that theft. And one of the key achievements in that, uh, Dave, was your ability to get these uh, private sector companies who traditionally, historically, do not like to come forward and admit that they've been hacked or compromised and have their names out there publicly for reputation, you know, harms their reputation. You got them to actually agree to be public about it, have their names mentioned right. in the indictment. Talk about that. How did you get them to come forward? Right. Why I, I was an unusual United States attorney because I hadn't served in the Department of Justice and I had represented many of these people and known many of them since childhood. But I spent most of my time trying to make sure that we could not only bring the case, but tell the story by putting a picture of the defendants, which we did at the back of the indictment, that iconic picture that came off a wanted poster, which showed the public who did it, and also departing from what would have been the norm, which is company A, B, C, D, E, but also putting a picture of who the victims are. And then when we announced the case, I described how this affected real people US because it led U.S. Steel, the United Steelworkers, Alcoa, Westinghouse, and how this led to factory closings and lost jobs and why we needed to care about this. So, Bill, uh, expand on that. That was like 2014, was it? And now here we are five years later. It's not just uh, steel and, 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 you know, taint secrets that the Chinese are after. They're moving into, what, biopharma and, and genetics. Can you talk a little bit about... So publicly we talk about uh, the span of influence and, and requirements that the, the, I would say the Ministry of State Security works with the, the Communist Party that developed to come here and actually steal innovation. And it goes from biopharma 
to green energy, to leading technology, to future markets, to gas, oil, shale, clean energy. And we saw a few years ago with the Monsanto case, stealing hybrid greens and sand because they have to feed 1.4 billion people. Hmm. So they would rather not create their own research and development arm where they can come over here to the West and take it. And they go first to market. Their patent program is quicker, more effective than ours. And they immediately get gain of a, of a local or international market at 30 cents in a dollar. Right. This, you know, idea of them stealing or working with, working with uh, genetic uh, mapping companies in the U.S., tell me about, I hadn't heard about that. What's, what's going on there? That sounds so it's complicated. So not only do they use their intelligence arms and yeah. their non-traditional collectors to steal our intellectual property trade secrets. In the case recently with uh, utilization of Duke and Yale's capability for genome mapping, huh. sometimes we actually engage with them and do great collaborative work with their research and development and their academic work, and they take it anyway. So it's a, it's a not winning environment. But they took that technology on the on genome and DNA, and they used it to imprison over a million Uyghurs. Right? So even great technology that we utilize uh, for great purposes sometimes is used nefariously by intelligence services of uh, rogue nations. So this was done by the MSS, which is sort of their major uh, intelligence service. They yeah, took I, this through legitimate lawful research partnership? Some lawful, um, some unwitting, and some mm -hmm. illegal, right? And I think that's the, the idea that uh, they utilize a whole country approach to the theft of our intellectual property trade secrets. They'll use collaborative mindsets in academia, joint ventures, uh, pri private equity, venture capital to be able to utilize all tools, whole society, society approach to obtaining our secrets. Talk a little bit, uh, both of you, I guess, about the uh, academic approach that the Chinese are making. This this issue now with the Chinese trying to, uh, or, or using, you know, gaining access to universities and, and university secrets, but also maybe trying to influence uh, academics or Chinese students and researchers there. How much of a challenge or threat really is it? And what should the government, what is the government's role here? Do anything about it? Well, in my view, it's a huge threat. Look, the good news is we are still the cradle of innovation and the best academic country in the world. Everybody wants to send their kids to school here. And lost in the shadow of the PLA case, which I did in 2014, was in 2015 I exposed a network of gunmen who were fictitious test takers or uh, fraudulent test takers who existed in this country who were taking the SAT and the GRE for students in China. And somehow they were getting passports. They would get admission to our colleges and then they would get a student visa and then go home after they were educated here. And this was uh, an organized network and it, at the least, deprived American students who might have been paying taxes for some of these state-related colleges space in those universities. There's an invasion of our research. There have been cases that have done there. So I believe this is a real threat. I believe what the government should do about it is the same we do with intellectual property. It seems to me that if we're going to have digital space, and we are the number one economy and we are the number one uh, research and development uh, location in the world, American citizens should be treated equally with citizens around the world and nation state intrusions should be treated as a real and present threat. So I cheer the expansion of this initiative. Um, with this, I'll, I'll double down on the threat. We believe it's, it's critical up there next to you know, 5G with moving forward. But what we're doing about it, so this past year, working under the leadership of Senator Burr and Senator Warner, a bipartisan effort in Congress. Uh, the my, chairman and vice chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Great. 
Um, we utilized in my office, the FBI and DHS, and we uh, met personally with over 150 university and college presidents mm -hmm. to talk about the threat, what it's like. We gave them a one-day classified reading so they could understand the, the intention of these foreign leaders, as well as here's the threat, here's how it's manifested, and here's the amount of investigations that are being done by the FBI. And let's work together to find a solution that is not only effective and efficient for you as universities and colleges, but also doesn't, um, I would say, perform the effort of any type of racism, racism because the argument has been this is a racist issue and, and the Chinese intelligence services have been pushing that envelope very, very effectively here in the U.S., but it's not. When you look at the amount of investigations the FBI has, which is over 900, 95% of them are from the People's Republic of China. Over 900 espionage or counter espionage yes. investigations? Yep. Uh, with respect to economic espionage. Oh, economic espionage, mm -hmm. right. Uh, but you, in fact, there have been a few cases where the department has had to, uh, to, to drop the case or the case got thrown out. Uh, you know, for lack of you know, evidence, and these were cases of, I believe, economic espionage against Chinese American, often uh, academics or researchers at universities, which has led to criticism that the universe, or that the Justice Department is overreaching and is sort of seeing a a, a, a Chinese threat amongst the Chinese American community here that doesn't really exist. Well, I'm in academia now, and I think that's a valid concern. And we still, in our institutions of higher education, aspire to have a worldwide student body and the educational opportunity in a diverse population is valued. So I think we have to be real careful to get that point right. And I will double down on, on the importance of understanding the threat versus actually who's committing the threat. Mm -hmm. But recently, the FBI and DOJ charged and indicted an American citizen in a university campus for spying for the Chinese intelligence services. So it's not about the Chinese individuals and students that are here. It's about the Communist Party of China and how they manifest uh, their efforts here in the U.S. through the Ministry of State Security, as well as the Confucius Centers and the Thousand Talent Programs. It's a holistic program, but it's certainly not about the legitimate students coming from China to study here. And, and what my partner talked about, the greatest college university system ever invented. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill, China is said to be making great strides in the use of artificial intelligence. Where exactly in the, in the field of AI is China most advanced, and, and what is the role of the U.S. government to enhance U.S. competitiveness here? So I will pass on the, the role of the advancing our competitiveness. I will stay in the threat perspective. Okay, maybe I think maybe. that uh, it is a significant threat, and their ability, and if you, if you map their want and their allocation of government funds to facilitating AI and ML in the billions of dollars is dramatic. Hmm. What they do have also, which is an unfair playing advantage, is, is all the theft of everyone's PII they've stolen, not only here in America, around the world. That theft of PII helps facilitate. That's personally identifiable information. That's correct, and that allows them to use that data sets, hundreds of thousands of petabytes of data. Just recently, the Anthem Healthcare was 78 million Americans had their health care records. They use that in the AI to be able to uh, promulgate advanced analytics. So the more data they steal from us, um, with, from PII, whether travel records, they use that to facilitate testing of their AI platforms. Like the OPM breach as well, right? Which 21 million Americans' records. All right. went into big databases uh, over which the Chinese run their um, AI algorithms. Right. Some of the current estimates is that more than 50% of the American adults have had all of their PII stolen by the People's Republic of China. Wow, that's half of us here. 
Um, Dave, did you? Well, I mean, the current denigration of facts and science is a threat to us. The retreat on investment in, in scientific research is a threat to us. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we in Pittsburgh have been the home of a lot of great advances, whether it's manufacturing, medical, uh, and technology. And those have all been sponsored by partnership between the government, the academic community, and private industry. And we need to continue that so that we can make Pittsburgh or Detroit or Philadelphia the envy of Shanghai instead of the other way around. Well, in fact, uh, China has one advantage in this sense in that they are much more of a command and control economy. And they, it's the government you know, can basically order companies and, and, re, and universities to, to do what's being here. We have a much more um, free market system, and, and we try to keep from independence from that market. But is there now some, is there more of a need, do you think, for the government to sort of maybe direct areas of a research uh, funded, give incentives so that we're not left as, you know, cop you know, in, in the background? I mean, perhaps, but even when the government sponsors it or directs it, mm -hmm. it's still driven by the scientist. I'd like to really address the premise of your question, mm -hmm. though. Some think that the initiative, particularly the work I did, was anti-China, and it was exactly the opposite. Mm. I personally believe that China is the linchpin of developing norms and laws in the emerging world of digital space, because they are the number two economy in the world. And at some point, they're going to appreciate that they have as much to lose as the number one economy has to lose. I mean, there's the old saw in law enforcement from Willie Sutton, why do you rob banks? Because that's <laughs> where the money is there. If you look at the threat vectors, right. they're all coming at the United States because we have things to lose. They can barely turn the lights on in North Korea and Russia. But China is not like that. So applying law to digital space was the essence of my mission in my former job. Mm -hmm. And I think if we do that correctly, it becomes part of a strategy as opposed to a tactic to make China our partner. And that was the strategy for years of engagement, right, with between U.S. and China to, to open our markets to them so that they would maybe become more, uh, more like us, want to be part of the free market and, 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 and abide by the rules then of the WTO, and they haven't followed those. They aren't following the same norms in cyberspace uh, about respecting uh, free and open internet. So how likely is it that we will be able to get China to, to become more like a, a rule of law nation and abide by Western norms and traditions? Well, <clears throat> I can't predict the end of that, but I can say mm -hmm. that any effort like this requires persistence and it's going to take time. The one thing I think has been successful is if you just look at China writ large, they largely have become more Western. Mm -hmm. Their young people are more Western. Okay. And I think that our engagement strategy has worked. It just requires continuous effort. So I will differ with my partner on this one a little bit. Um, I think. Uh, under the leadership of Xi Jinping, they have become the most amazing surveillance state we've seen in decades. And the social score they have and the ability to uh, photograph and their facial recognition of every second of everybody's life over there is really, um, and you see what's going on in Hong Kong right now, you see the power. Secondly, I think with any change that we just talked about has to come the agreement of ceasing the theft of intellectual property and trade secrets. Mm -hmm. If we're somewhere in the middle of 400 to 600 billion a year in economic loss due to their theft. That's about $4,000 per American family after taxes. So we have to be able to stem that tide of their theft. 
If we can't, then I don't know how we can get to a place where we get back to the diplomacy of hope. What will stem that? I mean, sanctions, there was a point at which this, the Obama administration was about to impose economic sanctions for uh, economic espionage in China. I think it's going to take a multifaceted, multi multiple levers to be able to do that, to include mm -hmm. policy from the White House, legislation from Congress, and I think a change of mindset in the American people to understand the damage and, that, and the value add or value subtracted from this effort. And I think that's going to be literally a whole country approach to stem the tide. I don't really disagree with what Bill said, but I think that we do need sanctions and I think that we have to really appreciate that the current trade war has impacted us negatively. We have divided our assets in the current trade war as opposed to multiply them by combining application of the rule of law with selling below cost within our markets when we could multiply that the conversation we have halved it in my view okay. uh, have the well, I want to get to a question from the audience but first I wanted to get to the um, uh, the issue of Huawei the the Chinese uh, uh, telecom equipment maker that is a, a big issue for the US government and, and in Europe too, especially as we're moving into 5G super fast, super advanced uh, telecom networks. The government, the US government has been pressing allies in Europe, especially to bar Huawei from their 5G networks and with mixed you know, results of success. The, the argument there is that allowing Huawei into your networks will uh, open a door for either you know, Chinese surveillance or cyber attacks that could disrupt the network at a critical moment. But Sue Gordon, who is the recent uh, deputy director of national intelligence, you, you know well, Bill, has publicly argued that you know, we, we have to take a pragmatic view. That, even if we don't have Huawei in our 5G here, there will be other countries in, around the world that do have Huawei in their networks, and we interconnect with those networks. So you've got to risk, you've got to manage risk and presume a dirty network. Uh, what do you think, Bill? Is she right? Well, in, in, in my space, whether she's right or not, mm -hmm. I, I hate to even think about having to presume a, a dirty network. It, the, in the world I live in, mm -hmm. counterintelligence, I think that is the beginning of the end. Um, I think from a practical standpoint, she might be right, but I think our efforts in the intelligence community and the counterintelligence writ large is to not have that dirty network. And I think we've been able to prove around the globe the nefarious activity of Huawei and what they're capable of doing now, never mind when we have a 5G platform. I would also say that Huawei to me, in my position, is not the problem. It's the Communist Party of China. So if Huawei goes away, there's another company that's going to facilitate that role of the Communist Party of China and Xi Jinping's effort to be the global supplier of telecommunications. And I think that is the threat we face, not necessarily a company of Huawei. I agree completely. One of the last cases I worked on <clears throat> ultimately led to the indictment of the so-called Boyasep Group, which was Advanced Persistent Threat Group 3. When the case was originally presented to me, it was enforcement of the Obama-Shi agreement. It later developed to be a global positioning satellite case, so think Google Maps, think bombs, drones, and then someone talked to me about precision agriculture, which I didn't know about. And then it later became written up as the spy arm of Huawei. So the Huawei conversation sounds like a 5G conversation that just emerged, but the Huawei conversation has been going on for some time. And I agree that they will go away until we, and, and someone else will replace them, until we address with China what is going to be our understanding. And I'm confident we can get there. It's just going to be very hard. Okay. 
so I have a question from, from the audience about uh, the law enforcement uh, tool of indictments. Uh, person asks, have the indictments against Chinese hackers done any good? I mean, I think, Dave, you mentioned that uh, you know, at one point this all kind of led to the Obama-Xi agreement, the pledge not to conduct economic espionage in cyberspace, which worked, it seemed, for about a year or so, but then uh, where the PLA started tailing off on its hacking, the MSS picked up. So, you know, now that agreement didn't seem to really be meaningful. So think, what do you think? I think it's an expectation issue. No one would suggest for a minute that mm -hmm. the FBI, which started investigating bankruptcies, uh, I'm sorry, bank robberies, is useless because we've never solved bank robbery. Our expectation in law enforcement is to reduce, not eliminate crime. I think it was a very important start. I would be the first to admit it was extremely controversial, and we did not bring them to Pittsburgh. I may be the only one left who believes they're ultimately going to be tried in Pittsburgh. <laughs> but it did lead to the Obama-Shi agreement, and that was something no one thought of at the time. And so imagine, do we give them three squares and a roof over their head for 10 years, or do the presidents of China and Russia get together and reach an agreement, which everybody agrees for a period of time reduced intellectual property theft down to zero? They also came and did, she came over and did the agreement in part because of, I think, the threat of economic sanctions, which, you know, Correct. Washington Post reported were, were about to happen. And that I think that combined with the indictments may have pushed them to come and make the agreement. Well, two things. Number one, I think the agreement, with she mm -hmm. is forefront of the conversation. And I agree that the that he, as president, agreed to stop the economic espionage from a cyber perspective. It did not stop it from a human perspective, the insider yeah. threat. So that increased dramatically. So they never stopped stealing, and they did make their transition from the PLA to the MSS in a more human-based effort. Secondly, I think with the indictments are critical, because I spend a lot of time with our partners, especially in the Five Eyes. The recent two Huawei indictments have been earth-shattering, I think, in terms of getting the facts out by DOJ of what the indictments are, what they mean for the private sector industry. So when I go to Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Great Britain, they look at these indictments very carefully and see how that manifests in their country. So as much as we are exposing the People's Republic of China for the nefarious activity, there is positive impact with our partners around the globe about that same activity in their country. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have right now, but let's thank Bill and Dave for a wonderful conversation thank today. You, thank yeah. you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.